Access to clean water, which supports life and a healthy environment, is a public trust, a fundamental human right, and is the shared responsibility of all who live or do business in Wisconsin. That's the opening statement of the policy position adopted by the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin. The issue of safe water, and in particular safe drinking water, is a real problem and on the minds of people in Wisconsin and around the world. At a recent talk sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County, the question was asked, water from the tap, is it safe to drink? To find out more, the League invited two water specialists, Ron Seeley, investigative reporter and editor at the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, and Abigail Cantor, water quality engineer and founder of Process Research Solutions, LLC. The talk took place on April 6, 2016 at the Capital Lakes Retirement Center in Madison. Handouts on the League's policy positions on water are located at their website at lwvdanecounty.org. First, we hear from Sue Larson, who introduces the speakers. Ron, as an award-winning journalist, has covered science and the environment for the Wisconsin State Journal. And more recently, he has contributed uh, to the Center for Investigative Journalism as a reporter and an editor and the Water Watch series, which has been covered in the State Journal. And even, I'm happy to say, in my own hometown paper, the Sun Prairie Star. It's an incredible um, series that talks about the quality of of drinking water in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, Ron also has been teaching at the UW. He's a senior lecturer teaching science writing on the faculty of the Life Sciences Communication Department in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. So um, he is a very busy person who has devoted his life to environmental writing and education. Abigail Cantor also, I think, is an educator in um, in your own way because you educate municipalities and um, work with as a consultant to assist in doing um, prevention and investigation of water quality in order to make improvements and um, to make sure that people can trust the water that they drink. And she is particularly significant for us because as we have listened to the news reports of the problems in Flint, Michigan, and other cities around the country, she aided the city of Madison to replace all of its lead pipes in the maybe 2002 or so, um, nearly 15 years ago. She has more than 30 years' experience, as I said before, and has authored the book Water Distribution System Monitoring, a Practical Approach for Evaluating Drinking Water Quality. She is co-author of the... um, Professional Association Manual on Water Supply Practices, Addressing Corrosion Control and Water Distribution Systems, and she is a member of the American Water Works Association Lead and Copper Rule um, Task Force Advisory Work Group. So we're going to bring, begin this evening with Ron, who is going to um, talk about his work with the Water Watch series and um, Uh, kind of set the stage for this issue, and then um, we'll move on to Abigail, who's going to deal with some of the more technicalities of um, water quality and quality prevention. I I took a trip down uh, with uh, a group of biologists it's been a, I don't know, a few years ago now, I was still at the State Journal, and I, I went with a group of biologists and uh, field researchers. Uh, I spent three days, or three weeks, in a dugout canoe with this biologist studying deforestation and the impact it had on the water uh, and, and water quality in the river. We visited villages, slept in hammocks at night in these uh, Thatchbrook uh, huts, uh, wonderful people uh, lived in these villages. They were very remote, Mesquita and Mayanga people. Uh, uh, and this was actually an exchange program with uh, the Bad River Reservation. Uh, there were some issues that uh, these Native American, these uh, uh, indigenous tribes had in common. And um, one of the things that struck me was that we, we meet with these villagers, and some of these villagers hadn't seen people like us in years, uh, and we came with uh, new radio sets, we came with computers, we came with a lot of, uh, a lot of material, a lot of items that uh, would, would help uh, connect them 
more easily with the outside world, we'd have meetings in these villages, and uh, the people were all very happy with the things we brought. But when it came time to talk about issues that they cared about, almost always, in fact, every single time, the issue that they brought up and the, and, and the thing we heard from them was, help us protect our drinking water. Help us protect our wells from the floodwaters. Uh, it opened my eyes. Uh, and little did I know that uh, really uh, just a few years later I'd be standing in the, the kitchen of a, a woman near Columbus, uh, Wisconsin. The woman was crying. She had her tap turned on. And she was telling me, my family can't drink this water any longer. We just found out we're in an atrazine prohibition zone, where uh, an area that has the wells have been tainted by pesticide. And it, it was uh, another eye-opener for me uh, that uh, we, uh, here we are in, in Wisconsin, and uh, yet we are uh, dealing with, with water. So I, I can't tell you how I go to my tap and I turn on the tap and, 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 and take a drink of water and these days, and boy, do I appreciate it. Uh, and I, I think I, I really want to start with helping you understand that what a rare thing this is to, to, to be able to drink water from a glass uh, here without being all that concerned. Uh, so a long, uh, cool drink of water is uh, another thing I want you to remember as I speak is that it's a right. It's a right to have access to clean water. It's not a privilege. It's a right that everyone should have. But everybody doesn't. And everybody doesn't even here in Wisconsin. I work now for, uh, part-time at least, for the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism. We uh, do investigations of a broad number of, on a broad number of issues. I was hired a couple of years ago to write about environmental issues in water. And we've received grants from the Joyce Foundation and a number of other major uh, granting uh, agencies uh, to support a project called Water Watch Wisconsin. Most recently, that uh, has included a series called Failure at the Faucet. Uh, and that series had an interesting uh, beginning. I, I teach, uh, I've also taught in the journalism department, I teach environmental reporting in the journalism department uh, on occasion. And a year ago, I taught an investigative reporting class there, helped teach it. And we decided, and there were other uh, reporters from, uh, and editors from the center who were helping me teach, and we decided to sort of do double duty with this class. We wanted to teach, teach these kids investigative techniques, but we also wanted to use them to investigate water. And so we turned them loose on water. And the question we asked was simple. How many people in Wisconsin can't drink their water? It's a simple question, but we were really surprised at the answer. One of the problems with uh, water, I think, is that we, uh, and, and we wanted this to be a statewide look. Now, in, in the past, we've, I've, I've written so much about water, but often it's on a narrow, in, a, in a narrower way, or, or, and we read about water in a narrow We read about uh, a, con, a single contaminant or a contaminant here and a contaminant there. We wanted to create a big picture and to really try to figure out statewide, where are we when it comes to our water? So I, I can't remember how long the list was, uh, but we had dozens of contaminants that we ended up investigating and, and asking, uh, you know, whether these were present in uh, people's water. I encourage you to go to our website, wisconsinwatch.org, and you can see the entire series there. The series is still in the making. Um, it's it's uh, just about complete, but I'm still editing a piece on pathogens, bacterial pathogens uh, and viruses in drinking water, and also we're going to be reporting more on pesticides. What did we find? Our student journalists and our staff spent months really scouring the landscape for scholarly academic reports, studies, research, and anything we could get our hands on from state agencies that would give us information about both our private and public water systems. One of the most striking findings we found in a, a study by the Department of uh, Health 
Uh, here in Wisconsin found nearly half of the state's private wells are estimated to be contaminated by one or more pollutants. That's uh, shocking. Nearly half of, of the state's private wells have one or more pollutants above health standards. Even so, and this was also surprising to us, we found that only about 16% of the households that have private wells, there's about 940,000 households dependent on private wells, only about 16% of those people have their water tested, so they don't know whether they're exposed to contaminants or not. And this was before Flint. Our stories on lead ran before the story broke about Flint, but we did find um, problems with lead a threat in as many as 6,000 municipal water systems, EPA data, and as many as 16,920 of those 940 households on private wells uh, exposed to to lead. Nitrate, uh, that comes, uh, of course, from agricultural practices and fertilizer. We uh, should be more than familiar with this in uh, Dane County since we have the highest levels in the state of, of nitrates in our wells here. But statewide, nitrate exceeds safe levels in uh, about 94,000 of those homes with private wells. Pesticides have been detected in about one-third of the state's private wells. So you're already starting to get an idea here that if someone would ask you how our water is in Wisconsin, probably you would answer it's pretty good. We really found uh, evidence that uh, there are many places where it's not. Um, Arsenic, evidence of arsenic. Uh, we found that 18% of the state's private wells contain E. coli or viruses. Those are the, that's the most common contaminant, actually, you find in wells, bacterial uh, contamination that uh, uh, either human or animal waste or, or other sources. And uh, if uh, you're told to test your well, that's the first thing generally you're told to test for. Um, we found uh, evidence uh, and, and studies that showed levels of, of strontium, uh, especially uh, some of this, uh, pollu- uh, this, this contamination is regional. It shows up in bands in parts of the state and, and not in others. Uh, Brown, Calumet, uh, Outagamie counties, we found studies that showed strontium in 73 out of 114 or 64% of the water samples from private wells there. A couple of dozen communities exceeding the EPA's maximum contaminant level for radium. Uh, found unsafe levels, unsafe levels of molybdenum, a metal, it's suspected it uh, may be coming from coal ash that's been disposed by utilities. Southeastern Wisconsin is a real problem area for this. Two, 200 of 1,000 private wells in uh, southeastern Wisconsin tested positive. So it is a statewide problem, as you can see. We mapped uh, this out, and uh, just about everywhere you turn, you'll see people dealing often with uh, one or more of these contaminants. But it really is about more than data. It's about more than numbers. And when I was working with my student journalists in the journalism department in this investigative class, that's what I tried to drive home to them, that we as journalists, we leave the the number crunching and uh, a lot of the really hard work with that, although we use it more than we used to. What we can do is we can make this story personal. We can bring it home with stories of real people who, uh, like that woman in her kitchen, was so upset about not being able to to drink water from her tap. This is a picture of two little girls. The uh, family is named Wagner. They're uh, in Kewanee County. I'm sure you've heard of Kewanee County and some of the problems they're having with wells contaminated by uh, manure that's running off from some of the big farms and, and other farms up there. More than data, again, a mother and daughter, Judy Trimmel and her daughter, Samantha. Samantha is now, I think, 11 or 12. Ten years ago, Samantha took a, a bath on a Sunday night. Uh, she was a, uh, just a couple of years old. Uh, a day later, she was uh, so sick and, and vomiting and just terribly sick, and they uh, took her to an emergency room. Eventually, uh, her illness was traced to the water uh, and the family's well was tested, and it was uh, thousands of times uh, above the, the safety standard for E. coli and, and, and bacterial contaminants. Um, this story's family story is interesting because it was a farmer uh, nearby that spread uh, manure on frozen ground uh, with the DNR's permission, and because uh, 
the manure storage lagoon on the farm was full. It was in February. The farmer had been storing manure all winter. Finally, uh, that they, they store, store the manure in these giant lake-like lagoons. And in this case, the lagoon was too full. The farmer spread the manure on frozen ground. Uh, it ran across that frozen ground into a creek, into uh, the family's uh, water supply. The entire family got sick. Samantha almost died. Uh, eventually, they received uh, an $80,000 settlement and the farmer was fined, I think, $100,000 eventually for, for damaging the water supply. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Water from the Tap, Is It Safe to Drink? Sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers are Ron Seeley, investigative reporter and editor at the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, and Abigail Cantor, water quality engineer and founder of Process Research Solutions, LLC. Over, I mentioned southeastern Wisconsin from a school in, uh, in southeastern Wisconsin. I forget which county it is where the students, uh, they have tape across the water fountains uh, because of molybdenum and boron contamination, and the students in that school have to drink bottled water. The cooks can't even use it to cook uh, lunches. So again, this is, this is a story that is is uh, about people, about uh, what it's like, uh, and that's what I asked my students. I said, "Tell me, get out there and interview these people, and tell me what it's like for them to live without access to clean water." You know, that's that's what we can do as journalists. We can take you into these lives of, of people and make these stories real, and by doing that, make them more meaningful. And I hope that's what we accomplished here. Uh, again, more than data, this is a fellow named Frank Michna. Like thousands and thousands of other people who deal with bad water throughout the state, he goes to the store. He and his family go to the store every week and buy their water and spend a lot of money on water. In this case, his, his well is uh, c- contaminated by boron and molybdenum, uh, more than likely from uh, coal ash that uh, has been buried by uh, utilities. We've also used coal ash uh, as foundations for highways to put uh, beneath highways. And, and now there's a suspicion that that uh, coal ash may be leaching uh, contaminants. You know, this was a, our statewide look at this. Of course, if you, uh, uh, we have our own problems here in our own backyard. In Dane County, we uh, deal with uh, uh, nitrates. The, the nitrate situation is we, we've had the highest level of nitrates in our wells of any county uh, in the state. It has, has dropped somewhat uh, from the high of uh, 35.8% of wells in 86. It's down in 2014 to 21.2. It still ranks us as the highest in nitrate contamination in the state. Uh, I mentioned pesticides. We are in a heavily farmed area, so pesticides are an issue here. Not only pesticides, but the breakdown products from pesticides, called metabolites. And as you can see here, in at least in this region, where uh, Dane County, uh, 62% of uh, the wells have been found to have pesticide detection. Over the years, probably I've uh, written more about Madison and Madison's water than just about any other uh, water issue. And uh, years ago, I did an investigation of Madison's water utility because people were complaining about manganese and iron in the water. I don't know if you remember that, but the, the water was very discolored. People were uh, calling about it and complaining, and they weren't getting anywhere with their complaints. We investigated that situation and found that uh, it was indeed a problem. There, there were other issues that uh, we uncovered uh, and did a, a series on the water utility. Until that time, I really think that the water utility, and at the time, uh, to, uh, Dave Cheslovich, who was the mayor at the time, said, you know, he said, in, in my time as mayor, nobody's ever asked me about the water utility. And, and that was very true then. You know, we turn on our tap, if the water comes out and we can drink it, we really don't think much about where it comes from, about the pipes underneath the ground. And uh, what we found uh, when we uh, conducted our investigation was there were some really serious problems with the infrastructure here in Madison. We were way behind in replacing uh, pipes. Some of our wells uh, had uh, levels of, uh, of contaminants, including some carcinogens in them that people weren't aware of. Uh, 
So we did, again, a series in which we told people what was in their water and what the problems were underground that they weren't seeing and how the utility was doing in addressing those problems. Part of the issue with this is our history is catching up to us. Our past is catching up to us. We, we have this bad habit, uh, have had this bad habit in the past of trying to bury our problems. Coal ash is one of those examples. For years it was thought that, you know, this would be fine. We could just dump this coal ash as fill in landfills or parks and, and it wouldn't be a problem. You know, but uh, today uh, it, it may be a problem because of these contaminants. I uh, spent an interesting uh, three weeks or so working with uh, city engineers and going uh, through maps there was a wonderful map room. I love utilities and infrastructure because nobody else writes about it, and it's fun to uh, understand that there's invisible, this invisible world that's so important beneath our feet. Uh, so I decided to find out where in the past we may have buried bad things. And um, this is the map that came of that. It was an interactive map, and we, we've buried things in places you wouldn't believe. Monona Terrace is built on a landfill. We used to back trucks up and dump uh, garbage and, and waste uh, basically uh, along the lakeshore there as fill. You know, I talked about coal ash. The St. Mary's parking lot is uh, underlined by, by coal ash. Uh, so there, there, uh, when you start looking for buried surprises, you'll find them, and it's, it's important to, to be aware of, of that. So why do we have all these problems uh, today? Why uh, suddenly are we finding out that uh, our water, uh, in some instances, many instances, may not be quite as, as safe and as clean as it should be? What we found, uh, we, we really uh, did find a lack of regulation and oversight. We've all read about the cutbacks at the Department of Natural Resources. There are fewer people there uh, to to keep track of manure that's being spread, the amounts of manure. There are fewer people there to go and check out complaints from people who, uh, who do see perhaps someone uh, spreading where they shouldn't be. And, and the other thing you have to understand is that regulation today has become somewhat of a dirty word. Um, but, uh, you know, whether you believe in limited government or not, and certainly there are, are many people today who believe that government has become too big and, and too powerful. This is something that really nobody else can do. Oversight and regulation is something that government should be doing uh, because uh, it's just not going to be done otherwise. And we saw a lack of that oversight and a lack of uh, the, the, the price of, of not paying attention to these issues. Uh, in, uh, we saw it in really in a really sad uh, way in, in Flint. I've seen, uh, I've done stories uh, also about, uh, so a lot of people don't realize that uh, human waste is spread on our, our ground. Septic, uh, waste from septic uh, tanks, often it's not treated. And uh, these uh, septic uh, companies, haulers, will take the septic waste to uh, to these rural landscapes and spread them on fields, spread this material on fields. We uh, found a situation in Dunn County where uh, that uh, septic waste was being spread in areas where the soil couldn't handle it, uh, something called a percolation rate, and it's how fast material moves through uh, soil. And in this case, there, there are regulations and rules that uh, are, are supposed to detour these, deter these companies from spreading, these farmers from spreading in areas that can't handle the waste. An organization and an engineer working in Dunn County found more than 100 sites where uh, septic waste were being spread in areas that uh, weren't uh, up to, up to uh, code, up to regulations. We found viruses in our water in, in recent years, uh, surprising research that's found uh, viruses in deep aquifers even, in the deep storage areas. Um, the scientist who did this is named Mark Borkhart. He's a brilliant researcher, microbiologist, works up in Marshfield. Uh, and he studied, uh, he, he uh, not only found uh, viruses in his research in uh, water systems, but he did uh, studies in 14 communities that linked those viruses to illnesses in, in the public, directly linked the illnesses that people were experiencing to, to those viruses. Shortly after his research uh, uh, became known, the DNR passed a new rule requiring communities, municipalities to, to treat their water. 
there hadn't been a requirement uh, to that effect. Uh, about a year later, a little more than a year later, with the change of administration and Governor Walker came to office, there was an effort to cut back on, on some of the regulations. Uh, that rule was rescinded. Uh, now there are about 60 communities where people, we figured, we tried to calculate it, 75 to 80,000 people are exposed to viruses because we no longer require communities to treat for these viruses. Um, other, just quickly, other uh, reasons uh, for problems. Uh, we've seen tremendous growth in communities, development patterns that damage water quality. Uh, when you start looking into it, you begin to realize that all that we've been reading about Waukesha, Waukesha is growing tremendously uh, because of that. They, they're seeking, uh, partly because of that, they're seeking, uh, there's also contamination issues, but they're seeking to take water from uh, Lake Michigan, a very controversial issue. Um, we, we also have parts of the state, generally uh, from uh, the, the Door County Peninsula on down all along the sort of the east coast, um, Kewanee County, uh, all along Lake Michigan, uh, Brown County. Uh, those areas, uh, and there are other areas in the state like this too, uh, the geology is uh, made up of fractured bedrock there that makes uh, these deep underground storage areas more vulnerable to pollution because the uh, things like liquid manure can, contaminants can run through those cracks. Uh, we don't have special regulations for those areas. In Door County, there's a similar problem, only it has to do mostly with failing septic systems. We found out that in Door County, 30, more than 30% of the septic systems are failing. Um, there used to be headlines in the papers up there about uh, vacation. They called it uh, the, summer, the summer flu, the vacation flu. Little did people know that uh, it had nothing to do with vacation. It had everything to do with the water they were drinking. Um, so, uh, and yet we, we haven't really passed any uh, regulations or, or rules that treat disposal of these wastes different in, in those karst areas. Um, many of these contaminants, we found several of these contaminants that are uh, present uh, just in the geolo geological, uh, uh, in, in the geologic deposits, harmful chemicals minerals and so forth. Uh, there's a real connection here between that people have to understand between water quantity and water quality. Arsenic, for example, when uh, aquifers get drawn down, these storage areas get drawn down, oxygen can interact uh, with the minerals and, and we end up with uh, arsenic. Uh, and there are other contaminants that, uh, that are similar. So it, it, even though these are not man-made contaminants, we make them worse and bring them out by uh, our actions, our activities, uh, using water mainly. Um, of all the things that I've written about, I, I, I really don't think, uh, and, and we've seen more headlines about this than anything else, flawed agricultural practice. We are an agricultural state. Agriculture is tremendously important in this state, and we all rely heavily on it, and it benefits us all. I grew up on a pig farm in central Illinois. Uh, I spent two years as an agricultural reporter. But there have been changes in agriculture that are causing problems that we just haven't uh, caught up with. Too much manure and not enough places to put it. Uh, too much liquid manure. This is uh, one of the problems. It's more mobile. It's, it spreads. This is one of the lagoons where they store the manure. It's like Lake Wingra. <laughs> and there, these places are, you'll find these lagoons all over. So uh, those are some of the, some of the reasons for, for why we're struggling today. Uh, again, it's, there's not one solution here. Uh, I think there are uh, things we can do. There's, there's reason not to be too, too depressed about this. It's important that you take a responsibility as an individual. Uh, if you have a private well, if you live in a rural area, get it tested. If you use municipal water, check the consumer confidence reporter that anybody, report that anybody can look at. I found out, uh, I, how many know what well their water comes from? That's, that's a really important thing to know. My water comes from well 14 on the west side. It's got the highest level of salt of any well in the city. I have high blood pressure. <laughs> important for me to know. Uh, know uh, what well serves your home and, and what's in it. If your home was built before 1984, think about having it assessed for lead. Uh, consider a filter if, if you have problems, but make sure it's the right one. Um, finally, this is one of those places, and I teach this often in my classes, where public policy and science and environment come together. And uh, this is a public policy issue. 
so it's very important that you vote for political candidates, I think, who make the environment and our water a priority. We have candidates this time around who are calling for a EPA to be eliminated. When asked about that, one candidate said, well, what about the environment? And the candidate said the environment will take care of itself. The environment will not take care of itself. Be informed. Read all you can. Uh, there are there's plenty of material out there uh, with the World Wide Web today. Uh, it's important to know about your own water, your community's water, your state's water. Uh, let your concerns about water be known. Let people know that you have a right to clean water. Okay? Go to meetings of the water utility. Go to the meetings of the Natural Resources Board. Go to the meetings of the Ag Board. Keep track of what's happening and become an activist. Thanks so much. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Water from the Tap. Is it safe to drink? Sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers are Ron Seeley, investigative reporter and editor at the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, and Abigail Cantor, water quality engineer and founder of Process Research Solutions, LLC. Well, thank you for having me here this evening. Um, Water quality has been a topic of conversation uh, lately with the Flint issue. I'm now not a pariah at cocktail parties. (laughs) So um, I'd like to offer my observations about water quality. I've been uh, working with drinking water since 1980 and uh, lead and copper issues since 92. So um, I think in general, in general, I mean, it's hard to say after Ron just gave you a, a countdown of all the problems, but I think in general, the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States has done an excellent job of giving us relatively safe drinking water. We travel to other cities and we go into restaurants, we drink the water, we go to hotels and friends' homes in other cities, and we don't think twice about it, and we live to tell about it, too. So um, if that's the case, then why did the Flint, Michigan problem happen? And um, um, let me... me, uh, explain a little bit about the drinking water regulations to you. A typical water system, so you've got a water source, whether it's uh, groundwater or surface water, and that goes into a grid of pipes, and then all of our buildings and our homes are connected to those pipes. So our drinking water regulations have been quite successful when they address contaminants in source water. We get toxicologists to tell us um, what contaminants will make us sick. And if they say contaminant X is bad, then there's a drinking water regulation that has us go out and measure it. And it's very easy to measure it. Uh, We go right where the source water comes into our drinking water system and we measure it. Some water systems have just one entry point to their distribution system. Milwaukee has two entry points. Madison has about 23 because they have 23 wells. But even with 23 entry points, it's a finite number of places where you can go and you can measure uh, the magnitude of this contaminant in the water. So if it's too high, you just put a treatment system in right there and you remove it. So the problem comes about when you start talking about contaminants that get added out in the distribution system, because those contaminants can change over location and over time. So you run into quite a number of dilemmas. Where are you going to measure this contaminant so that it's representative of the risk that is presented to the consumers? And how are you going to measure it? And what are you going to measure? It's factors in the distribution system that creates the situation for this contaminant to occur. So you have to know what to measure. And then how are you going to treat it? It's in varying degrees all over the system. So the EPA actually did a good job um, when it came to lead and copper back in 1991. They tried to answer these very difficult questions. 
And we didn't have a lot of track record of how you answer these questions. So I think they did a, a pretty good job of creating systems to measure and how to measure and what to measure and so forth. But the problem is many years have passed since 1991 when the lead and copper rule was put on the books. And the EPA stays with their same paradigm. They're reluctant to change um, their perspective. So what I want to do is describe to you two perspectives of water quality. Um, one perspective is the perspective that I hold, which I call the comprehensive perspective. And the other perspective is the regu regulatory one. So we start by thinking about water that flows into a pipe and comes to our faucet so we can take a drink. But it's just not that simple because that water has to pass through a pipe that has varying degrees of chemical scales and biofilms that have built up on the pipe walls. Now this, this greatly varies from system to system and over location in a water system. On top Oh, I do want to define, I, I said the word biofilms. I want to define that. The, that is a mass of microorganisms that are adhering to surfaces. They secrete enzymes that help them uh, adhere to pipe surfaces. These enzymes are carbohydrates. And they can even store their food in these um, um, masses of materials, and they can colonize and so forth. So I say the accumulations are both chemical scales and biofilms. Um, then add to this, the water that comes into the pipe isn't just pure H2O, hydrogen and oxygen. It's quite a complex solution of quite a number of chemicals and naturally occurring microorganisms. Microorganisms are everywhere. They're in the soil, they're in the air, and our water um, also picks up these microorganisms, and they are a natural occurrence in this solution. So you've got a very complex solution that we call our drinking water. It's, it's various chemicals and microorganisms. When it comes into the pipe, it interacts with these accumulations of chemical scales and biofilms. We have chemistry going on in the water. We've got chemistry going on on the pipe walls in the, in the accumulations. We've got microbiology in the water and microbiology on the pipe walls. And then we even have interactions between microbiology and chemistry. The microorganisms take chemical compounds to use as food, just like we do. They uh, then produce byproducts or waste products, like we do. And um, there's a, quite an interaction between chemistry and microbiology, between the scales and the water, and our final drinking water quality is whatever comes out of that pipe, chemicals or microorganisms that's entrained in the water or dissolved in the water. This is so complicated, we can't write a, an equation to predict what our water quality is going to be. And specifically, we can't write an equation to predict how much lead or copper will be in the final drinking water quality. So now we've got this very complicated system. We end up with potential problems that can occur. And I have now, with the drinking water flowing out of the pipe, there's a whole list of problems. Um, just to name a few, there's lead release, copper release, iron release. Any number of metals are there that can be released. There's microorganisms that can make us sick, like E. coli and Legionella. There's also microorganisms that don't make us sick. But some of us um, have gathered data and observed that they can corrode metals. There's disinfection byproducts and odors and discoloration and just a whole laundry list. So I call this whole system a very complicated water coming in, 
complicated interactions in the pipe and all these complicated problems that can come out. I call this the comprehensive perspective. This whole list of problems that can occur are interrelated. In fact, they're manifestations of the original problem, and that problem is that interaction with the accumulations of scales and biofilms on the pipe wall. So now let's look at the regulatory perspective, and I'll take as an example the lead and copper rule. The um, EPA takes each one of these problems that can occur in the distribution system and treats them individually. So to the EPA for lead and copper, it's simple. You just have carbonate compounds in the water flowing into the pipe. Once it gets into the pipe, all you have are carbonate scales of lead and copper on the pipe wall. And you get varying degrees of lead and copper coming out. In this simplistic perspective, all you have to do is adjust the pH and alkalinity of the water Alkalinity is a measure of carbonate concentration. So what you're trying to do is finesse the pH and alkalinity so that you create a more insoluble lead carbonate or a more insoluble copper carbonate. Um, the more insoluble these chemicals are, the more than they will stay on the pipe wall and not um, be dissolved in the water. So if you can finesse the pH and alkalinity, then you'll have less lead and copper coming out in the eyes of the EPA. You can also add orthophosphate. Uh, phosphates form highly insoluble compounds with lead and copper. And so <clears throat> once again, in this ideal system, you have lead and copper, less lead and copper coming out. But I never see this in actuality. What I see is quite a complex mix of chemicals and microorganisms on the pipe wall and quite a complex mix of chemicals and microorganisms flowing in and out of the pipes. So um, I, I never see such an ideal situation. In the comprehensive perspective, the solution is to physically clean out the chemical scales and biofilms. And then you can take steps to keep certain chemicals out of the distribution system in the first place. <clears throat> For instance, iron and manganese um, precipitate out in the, in the pipes, in the distribution system. And um, they're known to be able to grab onto other metals like lead and copper, arsenic, radium, whole host of metals, accumulate them, and then transport them throughout the distribution system. And, and to your faucet. So if you keep them out in the first place, you're, you're better off. Um, you can also keep out uh, nutrients for microorganisms. These are organic com uh, carbons, uh, nitrogen, and phosphorus. All of those nutrients uh, promote the growth of microorganisms in the, excessively in the distribution system. And you need to add disinfection at appropriate levels so that you can also stop the growth of microorganisms. So if you have a biologically stable water coming out of the pipe and the pipes are clean, you have very low potential to develop water quality problems. Let me define biostability of water because it's a very important concept. <clears throat> it's a balance of factors that promote excessive growth of microorganisms balanced against factors that um, uh, stop the excessive growth. So you need to remove nutrients, you need disinfection, you, you need to make sure water doesn't sit around and stagnate and have a long residence time. Um, and the goal is to prevent the excessive growth of all microorganisms, not just E. coli, the ones that make you sick, but all microorganisms. So once again, what I'm saying is you need a biologically stable drinking water coming out of a clean pipe in order to reduce the potential greatly for all these water quality problems to occur in the distribution system. If you're just joining us, 
You're listening to Water from the Tap. Is it safe to drink? Sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers are Ron Seeley, investigative reporter and editor at the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, and Abigail Cantor, water quality engineer and founder of Process Research Solutions, LLC. And so what I see um, is that every water system is on a water quality continuum. Um, when When I go into a water system to investigate and they have clean pipes and tanks and biologically stable water, I don't see many problems. But I see the other going towards the other end of the spectrum where what it's what I measure is what I call a soup of metals and microbes, and there's quite a laundry list of problems in those systems. So why isn't this comprehensive perspective generally accepted? Um, that's a good question. It baffles me, but I see that many people don't challenge basic assumptions. Like I said, the EPA came up with a very good beginning to understanding these problems in distribution systems when they published the lead and copper rule, but they refused to move away from that simplistic perspective. Um, So now let's talk about Flint, Michigan, and look at it through the perspective of this comprehensive paradigm. So remember I said that you need clean pipes free of chemical scales and biofilms. So um, now I don't have inside information in Flint. I'm not working there, thank goodness. Um, But I, I gathered information from what I read in the many articles that were out there. So I read that Flint has 600 miles of unmaintained water main. Now, this is not a picture of a Flint, Michigan water main. This is a water main that is pretty much anywhere USA. This is unlined cast iron water main, and um, they, they are very old pipes, and they are corroded, and so you get these big tubercles of iron particles and uh, other metals. And it's laced with microorganisms. The population is quite extreme in in this debris. And this is what drinking water flows through in many cities, especially older cities. So even before we get to the lead pipes of Flint, Michigan, um, I, I know that this kind of debris can go into people's homes and uh, pick up lead and transport it to their faucets, and the microorganisms can colonize if the conditions are right and create more corrosion of metals in home plumbing. So I would say, given that Flint had no budget to replace or repair or flush their water mains, that the people of Flint were exposed to quite a lot of metals and microorganisms for decades. It just wasn't visible to them. And of course, they have the presence of lead service lines in many of the homes there. That's a major source of lead, and that adds to the the dangerous mix. Um, But I want to remind you that there are water systems in the U.S. that have been out of compliance with the lead and copper rule, and they have no lead service lines. So there's other sources of lead in water systems. Then I said you need biologically stable water. And um, let's just think about the fact that Flint, the Flint system switched to river water. Now, in any river, there's high organic carbon loading, and organic carbon is a major nutrient for microorganisms. There's also a high microbiological loading. But, of course, they did treat it. They ran it through a filter. But, unfortunately, this awareness of biostability is not part of the standard of practice right now in the drinking water field. So I see many filters that are not um, maintained properly. They're, they actually can become incubators for microorganisms. And they actually put higher microorganisms and organic carbon downstream into the distribution system. But this is something that's not typically measured. 
Also, um, I read that the Flint system was built for a population of 200,000, but there's less than 100,000 now. So that means they would have rather large storage tanks. And the more you let water sit around in any water system, the more potential you have to um, have excessive growth of microorganisms. So that those combination of factors, this highly biologically unstable water, which I am just theorizing Flint had, coming in contact with these existing scales most likely destabilized the scales, and um, we all know the rest of the story. First, the people noticed discolored water. So to me, that tells me that these existing scales were disrupted. And it doesn't even have to be something in, the serv in their lead service lines or in the house. It's out there in the water mains. They, there were odors from the water. That tells me that, they, that these, this debris was disrupted down to very deep levels so that the anaerobic layers of biofilm were probably disturbed. Then, even before the lead issue was um, brought to at least the management's um, attention, the water utility measured uh, presence of E. coli, which is a, a microorganism that can make a population sick. So they had a boil water order. That was within about four or five months <clears throat> from switching to the Flint system. Then they put in lots of chlorine to try to get rid of the bad microorganisms, and they created a situation where you have excessive chlorine and excessive, they already had excessive organic carbon out in the system, and the combination of the two is a carcinogenic compound, and we call it disinfection byproducts, and there are regulations about it. So then they had that problem. <clears throat> then finally, when the Virginia Tech people uh, called management's attention to the fact that there really was a high lead release. It was acknowledged. There's lead being released and iron being released. And as of January, we heard statistics of a, a high uptick in the um, illness from Legionella. So to me, this is just part of the picture that I've been seeing in water systems, though not as extreme, thank goodness. Um, but I see this all over. On top of all these woes, there's water problems that can occur in buildings. And I see rather an epidemic having to do with modern building design, uh, modern plumbing design, in that uh, modern plumbing design is increasing the storage of water on site. And the reason is, well, uh, just a building plumbing system, the water comes in from the water main, <clears throat> and we typically divide it into the cold water system and the hot water system. There's tanks and sometimes treatment, like in Madison, we have to have water softeners before our hot water tank and so forth. Um, so all of this, the, the water is stored in the pipes, stored in the tanks, and the amount of time that the water spends in the pipes and the tanks in a building can be a problem if it's too long, because that can promote the growth of microorganisms, and you, be, you get a lot of these ills that I've been talking about that um, previously I was talking about developing out in the distribution system. Here's some examples of why modern plumbing design is leading to um, high residence time of water. It, really comes down to people wanting large bathtubs that they want to fill very quickly and shower towers that spray from all kinds of nozzles. And um, you have to, by code, design for the highest demand. So that makes you have to have oversized um, pipe diameters and hot water tanks. I've seen 350-gallon hot water tanks in homes for a family of four, and they wonder why their pipes are corroding. So the major problem from modern plumbing design is microbiologically influenced corrosion. So now, with all, all those scary stories Ron's <laughs> told you and I've told you, is tap water safe to drink? 
and I say, yes, it is, if the source water contaminants are controlled. So, and it's easier in a municipal system because they, by law, have to test for a whole list of contaminants. Private wells that Ron talked about, they basically have to test for uh, total coliform and nitrates, and that's it. And anything else is they have to be knowledgeable enough and rich enough to, to test for a whole long list of contaminants that our municipal systems test for. Uh, so if those are controlled, then that's a, a good sign. And I also say you also have to have a clean municipal water system. Find out how your water system um, is cleaning the pipes. Here in Madison, after many lessons learned, they use unidirectional flushing and, in fact, have done a very good job of cleaning um, and other water systems aren't up to speed on that kind of um, effort to get rid of the accumulations in the pipes. Um, they also have to be replacing, have a good program to replace their old pipes. It's very expensive, and um, replacing pipes was always at the bottom of the budget list, but that's the key to good water quality, and at this point now in Madison, they do have a more aggressive program for doing that. Um, and also, they have to be achieving biostability of water. So they have to be aware of um, the proper disinfection of nutrients that might be in the water and so forth. And um, Madison is also aware of biostability. Uh, in fact, a number of years ago, they increased the disinfection level because they realized it was too low. And then it's also your responsibility as a person who lives in a building. Now, it's harder for those of you who live in these buildings here. It's harder because it's an apartment house. You don't have as much control as a private homeowner. But in any building that you live in, you want to know, are there lead pipes? I don't believe there are in this building. Uh, well, they've all been replaced in Madison anyway. You also want to get rid of galvanized iron pipes. Galvanized iron pipes uh, are, is an older type of pipe that was used, and it is notorious. Uh, it's known now that it adds to the uh, accumulation of lead and transport of lead as you get the corrosion, corroded iron particles. Um, you want to make sure that there's the proper uh, volume of tanks in your building uh, to the water usage um, and the population of the building. So you want to make sure you've minimized the residence time of water. If, if you have a jacuzzi, um, then you need to rethink how fast you want to fill that jacuzzi and do you really want a 350-gallon water tank. Um, a, a big thing that uh, homeowners and large building owners forget is you need to blow down your hot water tanks. The biggest thing that I find in buildings is an accumulation of metals and microorganisms at the bottom of water tanks where everything settles down. So you need to bleed that off routinely. And you also be aware not to um, let water stagnate in your in your building, uh, if you're going to be away for a long period of time, you need someone to come in and run water for you. Um, so, yes, the water is good to drink if you've got all of those criteria. And I agree with Ron that you should be aware of what your local water utility is doing in this, these respects. So, thank you. You've been listening to Water from the Tap. Is it safe to drink? sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers were Ron Seeley, investigative reporter and editor at the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, and Abigail Cantor, water quality engineer and founder of Process Research Solutions, LLC. The talk took place on April 6, 2016, at the Capitol Lakes Retirement Center in Madison. Handouts on the League's policy position on water are located at their website, at lwvdanecounty.org.
The views expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted. If credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County, and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.